Book One, Chapter Ten of Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Robert Falconer by George MacDonald, Chapter Ten Another Discovery in the Garret. Little did Robert dream of the reception that awaited him at home. Almost as soon as he had left the house, the following events began to take place. The mistress's bell rang, and Betty, God bend the horse to see what she could be wanting, whereupon a conversation ensued. "'What was that at the door, Betty?' asked Mrs. Falconer, for Robert had not shut the door so carefully as he ought, seeing that the deafness of his grandmother was of much the same faculty as her blindness. Had Robert not had a hold of Betty by the forelock of her years, he would have been unable to steal any liberty at all. Still, Betty had a conscience, and although she would not offend Robert if she could help it, yet she would not lie. "'Deed, ma'am, I cannot just distinctly say, and I heard the door,' she answered. "'Where's Robert?' was her next question. "'He's generally up the stair about this oar, ma'am. That is, when he's no in the parlour at his lessons.' "'What gangs he so muckle up the stair for, Betty, do ye ken?' It's something by ordinary with him. Deed I did not ken, ma'am. I never took it into my head to gone considerin' about it. He'll have some ploy of his on, nae doubt. Laddies will be laddies, ye ken, ma'am. I doot, Betty, you'll be aidin' and abedin', and it does not become your years, Betty. My years are not to find fault with, ma'am. They're well enough. That's nothing to the pint, Betty. What's the laddie aboot? Do you mean when he gongs up the stair, ma'am? Ah, uh, ye can weel enough what I mean. Weel, ma'am, I tell ye I did not ken, and ye never heard me tell ye a lee sin ever I was in your service, ma'am. Na, na, don't recht. Ye go on aboot it and aboot it, and at last ye come say near lean that giving you spake another word you would be at it, and it just frights me from sparing uh, other question at ye. And that's who ye went out of it. But no at it's about my own grandson, I'm no going to lose him to save a woman of your years, what ought to know better, and say I'll spare at ye, though ye should be driven to lee like Sotin himself. What's he about when he gones up the stairs? No. Well, as sure as death, I did not ken. You drive me to swearin', ma'am, and no to lean. I care not. Have you no idea about it, then, Betty? Weel, ma'am, I think sometimes he cannot be well, and mount have a fox in his stomach, or something of that nature, for what he eats is awful, and I think whiles he just gones up the stair to eat at his own will. That jumps with my own observations, Betty. Do you think he might have a rabbit, or maybe a power of them, in some boxy in the garret, no? And what for no, given he had, ma'am? What for no, nesty things? But that's no the pint. I, I have to hold ye to the point, Betty. The pint is whether he has rabbits or no. Or guinea pigs, suggested Betty. Well, or maybe a puppertois. Or I can't a laddie aunts at keep it a whole family of kitlins, or maybe he might have a bit lammy. There was an uncle of mine own 
Hold your tongue, Betty. Ye have ower muckle to say for all the sense there's into it. Well, ma'am, ye spared questions at me. Well, I have had enough of your answers, Betty. Go on and tell Robert to come here directly. Betty went, knowing perfectly that Robert had gone out, and returned with the information. Her mistress searched her face with a keen eye. That mount have been himself after all, one ye thought ye heard the door gone, said Betty. It's a strange thing that I should hear him clear here with the door steeked, and your door open at the very door check of the other, and you no hear him, Betty, and me so deaf as will. Deed, ma'am, retorted Betty, losing her temper a little, I can be as deaf as other folk myself, whiles. When Betty grew angry, Mrs. Falconer invariably grew calm, or at least put her temper out of sight. She was silent now, and continued silent till Betty moved to return to her kitchen, when she said, in a tone of one who had just arrived at an important resolution, Betty, will just away up the stair and look. Well, ma'am, I have no objections. No objections? What for should you or any other body have any objections to me gone where I like in my own house? Humph! exclaimed Mrs. Falconer, turning and facing her maid. In course, ma'am, I only meant I had nae objections to go on with ye. And what for should ye, or any other woman that I paid twa pun five in the half-year till, dar to have objections to go on where I wanted ye to go in my own house? Hoot, ma'am, it was but a slip of the tongue, naething more. Slip me nae such slips, or ye'll come by a fall at last, I do it, Betty, concluded Mrs. Falconer, in a mollified tone, as she turned and led the way from the room. They got a candle in the kitchen, and proceeded upstairs, Mrs. Falconer still leading, and Betty following. They did not even look into the gale room, not doubting that the dignity of the best bedroom was in no danger of being violated, even by Robert, but took their way upwards to the room in which he kept his school-books, almost the only articles of property which the boy possessed. Here they found nothing suspicious. All was even in the best possible order. Not a very wonderful fact, seeing a few books and a slate were the only things there besides the papers on the shelves. What the feelings of Shargar must have been when he heard the steps and voices, and saw the light approaching his place of refuge, we will not change our point of view to inquire. He certainly was as little to be envied at that moment as at any moment during the whole of his existence. The first sense Mrs. Falconer made use of in the search after possible animals lay in her nose. She kept snuffing constantly, but beyond the usual musty smell of neglected apartments, had as yet discovered nothing. The moment she entered the upper garret, however, "'There's an elfard smell here, Betty,' she said, believing that they had at last found the trail of the mystery. "'But it's no like the smell of rabbits. Just look in the nook there behind the door.' "'There's naething here,' responded Betty. "'Ruin the end of that kiss there. I was looking into the press.' As Betty rose from her search behind the chest, and turned towards her mistress, her eyes crossed the cavernous opening of the bed. There, to her horror, she beheld a face like that of a galvanized corpse staring at her from the darkness. Shargar was in a sitting posture, paralyzed with terror, waiting like a fascinated bird till Mrs. Falconer and Betty should make the final spring upon him, and do whatever was equivalent to devouring him upon the spot. 
He had sat up to listen to the noise of their ascending footsteps, and fear had so overmastered him that he either could not, or forgot that he could, lie down and cover his head with some of the many garments scattered around him. I did not say wusky, did I? He kept repeating to himself in utter imbecility of fear. The Lord preserve us! exclaimed Betty the moment she could speak, for during the first few seconds, having caught the infection of Shargar's expression, she stood equally paralyzed. The Lord preserve us! she repeated. Aunt is enough, said Mrs. Falconer sharply, turning round to see what the cause of Betty's ejaculation might be. I have said that she was dim-sighted. The candle they had was little better than a penny dip. The bed was darker than the rest of the room. Shargar's face had many of the more distinctive characteristics of manhood upon it. "'Good preserve us!' exclaimed Mrs. Falconer in her turn. "'It's a woman!' Poor deluded Shargar, thinking himself safer under any form than that which he actually bore, attempted no protest against the mistake. But indeed he was incapable of speech. The two women flew upon him to drag him out of the bed. Then, first recovering his powers of motion, he sprang up in an agony of terror and darted out between them, overturning Betty in his course. "'Ye rough slimmer!' cried Betty from the floor. "'Ye long-legged jowd!' she added as she rose, and at the same moment Shargar banged the street door behind him in his terror. "'I wot ye did not carry your coats too long!' For Shargar, having discovered that the way to get the most warmth from Robert's great-grandfather's kilt was to wear it in the manner for which it had been fabricated, was in the habit of fastening it round his waist before he got into bed, and the eye of Betty, as she fell, had caught the swing of this portion of his attire. But poor Mrs. Falconer, with sunken head, walked out of the garret in the silence of despair. She went slowly down the steep stairs, supporting herself against the wall, her round-toed shoes creaking solemnly as she went, took refuge in the gale room, and burst into a violent fit of weeping. For such depravity she was not prepared. What a terrible curse hung over her family! Surely they were all reprobate from the birth, not one elected for salvation from the guilt of Adam's fall, and therefore abandoned to Satan as his natural prey, to be led captive of him at his will. She threw herself on her knees at the side of the bed, and prayed heartbrokenly. Betty heard her as she limped past the door on her way back to her kitchen. Meantime, Shargar had rushed across the next street on his bare feet into the crooked wind, terrifying poor old Kirstan Peary, the divisions betwixt the compartments of whose memory had broken down into the exclamation to her next neighbour, Tam Rim, with whom she was trying to gossip. Eh, Thomas, that'll be on of the slaughtered at Culloden. He never stopped till he reached his mother's deserted abode. Strange instinct. There he ran to earth like a hunted fox. Rushing at the door, forgetful of everything but refuge, he found it unlocked, and closing it behind him, stood panting like the heart that has found the water brooks. The owner had looked in one day to see whether the place was worth repairing, for it was a mere outhouse, and had forgotten to turn the key when he left it. Poor Shargar! Was it more or less of a refuge that the mother that bore him was not there either to curse or welcome his return? less if we may judge from a remark he once made in my hearing many long years after for you see he said a mother's a mother be she the very devil 
Searching about in the dark, he found the one article unsold by the landlord, a stool with but two of its natural three legs. On this he balanced himself and waited, simply for what Robert would do, for his faith in Robert was unbounded, and he had no other hope on earth. But Shargar was not miserable. In that wretched hovel, his bare feet clasping the clay floor in constant search of a waving equilibrium, with pitch darkness around him, and incapable of the simplest philosophical or religious reflection, he yet found life good. For it had interest, nay more, it had hope. I doubt, however, whether there is any interest at all without hope. While he sat there, Robert, thinking him snug in the garret, was walking quietly home from the shoemaker's, and his first impulse on entering was to run up and recount the particulars of his interview with Alexander. Arrived in the dark garret, he called Shargar, as usual, in a whisper, received no reply, thought he was asleep, called louder, for he had a penny from his grandmother that day for bringing home two pails of water for Betty, and had just spent it upon a loaf for him. But no Shargar replied. Thereupon he went to the bed to lay hold of him and shake him. But his searching hands found no Shargar. Becoming alarmed, he ran downstairs to beg a light from Betty. When he reached the kitchen, he found Betty's nose as much in the air as its construction would permit. For a hook-nosed body, she certainly was the most harmless and ovine creature in the world. But this was a case in which feminine modesty was both concerned and aggrieved. She showed her resentment no further, however, than by simply returning no answer in syllable or sound or motion to Robert's request. She was washing up the tea-things and went on with her work as if she had been in absolute solitude, saving that her countenance could hardly have kept up that expression of injured dignity had such been the case. Robert plainly saw, to his great concern, that his secret had been discovered in his absence, and that Shargar had been expelled with contumely. But, with an instinct of facing the worst at once, which accompanied him through life, he went straight to his grandmother's parlour. "'Well, Grandmamma," he said, trying to speak as cheerfully as he could. Granny's prayers had softened her a little, else she would have been as silent as Betty, for it was from her mistress that Betty had learned this mode of torturing a criminal. So she was just able to return his greeting in the words, "'Well, Robert,' pronounced with the finality of tone that indicated she had done her utmost and had nothing to add. "'Here's a brewage,' thought Robert to himself, and still on the principle of flying at the first of mischief he saw, the best mode of meeting it, no doubt, addressed his grandmother at once. The effort necessary gave a tone of defiance to his words. "'What for will not you speak to me, Granny?' he said. "'I'm no haythen, nor yet a papist.' "'You're war nor both in one, Robert.' "'Hoots, you will not say both, Granny,' returned Robert, who even at the age of fourteen, when once compelled to assert himself, assumed a modest superiority. "'None of such impudence,' retorted Mrs. Falconer. "'I wonder where you learned that.' but it's nae wonder evil communications corrupt good manners you're a lost prodigal robert like your father afore ye i have just been sitting here thinking with myself whether it would not be better for both of us to let ye go on and reap the fruit of your doings at once for the hard ways is the best road for transgressors i'm no bond to keep ye well well i was away to shargar him and me'll hold on together better nor you and me granny 
He's a poor crater, but he can stick till a body. What are ye haverin' aboot Shargar for, ye hypocrite loon? You'll no go on to Shargar's, I warrant. You'll be after that vile limmer that's turned my honest hoose into a sty this last fortnight. Granny, I dinna ken what ye mean. She kens, then. I sent her off like one of Samson's foxes with the firebrand at her tail. It's a pity it was not tied atween the twa of you. Preserve us, Granny. Is it possible ye have taken Shargar for one of womankind? I ken naething aboot Shargar, I tell ye. I ken that Betty and me took an ill-fard dame in the bed in the garret. Could it be his mother? thought Robert, in bewilderment. But he recovered himself in a moment and answered, Shargar may be a queen after all for anything at I ken to the contrary, but I took him for a loon, face such a queen as he'd make and careless to resist the ludicrousness of the idea he burst into a loud fit of laughter which did more to reassure his granny than any amount of protestation could have done however she pretended to take offence at his ill-timed merriment seeing his grandmother staggered robert gathered courage to assume the offensive but granny whoever betty no to say you could have driven oot a poor half-starved creature like shargar even supposing he ought to have been in coaties and no in trousers, and the mother of him run away and left him, it's more nor I can understand. I misdoot me sore, but he's gone and drooned himself. Robert knew well enough that Shargar would not drown himself without at least bidding him good-bye, but he knew, too, that his grandmother could be wrought upon. Her conscience was more tender than her feelings, and this peculiarly occasioned part of the mutual non-understanding rather than misunderstanding between her grandson and herself. The first relation she bore to most that came near her was one of severity and rebuke, but underneath her cold outside lay a warm heart to which conscience acted the part of a somewhat capricious stoker, now quenching its heat with the cold water of duty, now stirring it up with the poker of reproach, and ever treating it as an inferior and a slave. But her conscience was, on the whole, a better friend to her race than her heart, and indeed the conscience is always a better friend than a heart whose motions are undirected by it. From Falconer's account of her, however, I cannot help thinking that she not unfrequently took refuge in severity of tone and manner from the threatened ebullition of a feeling which she could not otherwise control, and which she was ashamed to manifest. Possibly conscience had spoken more and more gently, as its behests were more and more readily obeyed, till the heart began to gather courage, and at last, as in many old people, took the upper hand, which was outwardly inconvenient to one of Mrs. Falconer's temperament. Hence, in doing the kindest thing in the world, she would speak in a tone of command, even of rebuke, as if she were compelling the performance of the most unpleasant duty in the person who received the kindness. But the human heart is hard to analyze, and indeed will not submit quietly to the operation however gently performed, nor is the result at all easy to put into words. It is best shown in actions. Again, it may appear rather strange that Robert should be able to talk in such an easy manner to his grandmother, seeing he had been guilty of concealment, if not of deception. But she had never been so actively severe towards Robert as she had been towards her own children. To him she was wonderfully gentle for her nature, and sought to exercise the saving harshness which she still believed necessary 
solely in keeping from him every enjoyment of life which the narrowest theories as to the rule and will of god could set down as worldly frivolity of which there was little in this sober boy was in her eyes a vice loud laughter almost a crime cards and novels as she called them were such in her estimation as to be beyond my powers of characterization her commonest injunction was no be dus that is sober uttered to the soberest boy she could ever have known but robert was a large-hearted boy else this life would never have had to be written and so through all this his deepest nature came into unconscious contact with that of his noble old grandmother there was nothing small about either of them hence robert was not afraid of her he had got more of her nature in him than of her son's she and his own mother had more share in him than his father though from him he inherited good qualities likewise he had concealed his doings with shargar simply because he believed that they could not be done if his grandmother knew of his plans herein he did her less than justice but so unpleasant was concealment to his nature and so much did the dread of discovery press upon him that the moment he saw the thing had come out into the daylight of her knowledge such a reaction of relief took place as operating along with his deep natural humour and the comical circumstance of the case gave him an ease and freedom of communication which he had never before enjoyed with her likewise there was a certain courage in the boy which if his own natural disposition had not been so quiet that he felt the negations of her rule the less might have resulted in underhand doings of a very different kind possibly from those of benevolence he must have been a strange being to look at i always think at this point of his development with his huge nose his black eyes his lanky figure and his sober countenance on which a smile was rarely visible but from which burst occasional guffaws of laughter at the words droned himself mrs falconer started run laddie run she said and fess him back directly betty betty go on with robert and help him to look for shargar you old blind doited body it says ye can see and cannot tell a lad from a lass nay nay granny i'm no goin out with a dame like her trailin at my foot she would be a sore hindrance to me given shargar be to be gotten that is given he be in life i's get him wantin betty and given ye did not ken him for the creature ye found in the garret he mount be sore changed since i left him there well well robert go on your ways but given ye be deceivin me may the lord forgive ye robert for sore ye'll need it nay fear that granny returned robert from the street door and vanished mrs falconer stalked no i will not use that word of the gait of a woman like my friend's grandmother stately stepped she put the hoose to betty she felt strangely soft at the heart robert not being yet proved a reprobate but she was not therefore prepared to drop one atom of the dignity of her relation to her servant betty she said you have made a mistake what's that ma'am returned betty it was not a lass of all it was that crater sargar you said it was a lass yourself first ma'am you ken well enough that i'm short-sighted and have been from the day of my birth i'm no old enough to mind upon that ma'am returned betty revengefully but in an undertone as if she did not intend her mistress to hear and although she heard well enough her mistress adopted the subterfuge but i'll swear the creature i saw was in petticoats 
Swear not at all, Betty. Ye have made a mistake only gate. Wha says that, ma'am? Robert? I will, given he be telling the trowth. Dar ye insinuate to me that a son of mine would tell anything but the trowth? Nay, nay, ma'am, but given that was not a queen, ye cannot deny, but she looked uncle one, and no a bashful one either. Given he was a loon, he would not look like a bashful lass anyway, Betty, and there you're wrong. Well, well, ma'am, have it your own way, muttered Betty. I will have it my own way, retorted her mistress, because it's the right way, Betty, and no ye mount just go on up the stair and get the place cleaned out and put in order. I will do that, ma'am. I will ye, and look well aboot, Betty, you that can see so well in case there should be ony cattle aboot, for he's none of the cleanest, yon dame. I will do that, ma'am. And go on directly afore he comes back. What comes back? Robert, of course. What for that? Because he's coming with him. What he's coming with him? Call it she, given you like. It's Shargar. What says that? exclaimed Betty, sniffing and starting at once. I say that, and you go on and do what I tell you this minute. Betty obeyed instantly, for the tone in which the last words were spoken was one she was not accustomed to dispute. She only muttered as she went. It'll all come upon me as usual. Betty's job was long ended before Robert returned. Never dreaming that Shargar could have gone back to the old haunt, he had looked for him everywhere before that occurred to him as a last chance. Nor would he have found him even then, for he would not have thought of his being inside the deserted house, had not Shargar heard his footsteps in the street. He started up from his stool, saying, That's Bob, but was not sure enough to go to the door. He might be mistaken. It might be the landlord. He heard the feet stop, and did not move, but when he heard them begin to go away again, he rushed to the door and bawled on the chance at the top of his voice, Bob! Bob! Eh, hey, ye crater, said Robert. Ere ye there after all? Eh, hey, Bob! exclaimed Shargar and burst into tears. I thought you would come after me. Of course, answered Robert coolly. Come away home. Where till? asked Shargar in dismay. Home to your own bed at my granny's. Nay, nay, said Shargar hurriedly, retreating within the door of the hovel. Nay, nay, Bob, lad, I no do that. She's an awful woman, that granny of yours. I cannot think who ye can bide with her. I'm well out of her grups, I can tell ye. It required a good deal of persuasion, but at last Robert prevailed upon Shargar to return. For was not Robert his tower of strength? And if Robert was not frightened at his granny, or at Betty, why should he be? At length they entered Mrs. Falconer's parlour, Robert dragging in Shargar after him, having failed altogether in encouraging him to enter after a more dignified fashion. It must be remembered that although Shargar was still kilted, he was not the less trousered, such as the trousers were. It makes my heart ache to think of these trousers, not believing trousers essential to blessedness either, but knowing the superiority of the old Roman costume of the kilt. No sooner had Mrs. Falconer cast her eyes upon him than she could not but be convinced of the truth of Robert's averment. Here he is, Granny, and given ye be not satisfied yet. Hold your tongue, laddie. Ye have given me nae cause to do your word. 
Indeed, during Robert's absence, his grandmother had had leisure to perceive of what an absurd folly she had been guilty. She had also had time to make up her mind as to her duty with regard to Shargar, and the more she thought about it, the more she admired the conduct of her grandson, and the better she saw that it would be right to follow his example. No doubt she was the more inclined to this benevolence that she had, as it were, received her grandson back from the jaws of death. When the two lads entered from her armchair, Mrs. Falconer examined Shargar from head to foot with the eye of a queen on her throne, and a countenance immovable in stern gentleness, till Shargar would gladly have sunk into the shelter of the voluminous kilt from the gaze of those quiet hazel eyes. At length she spoke. Robert, take him away. Well, I take him till Granny. Take him up to the garret. Bet he'll have taken a tub of hot water up there given this time and you mount see that he washes himself from head to foot, or he's no bide and oor in my house. Go on away and see till it this minute. But she detained them yet a while with various directions in regard of cleaning, for the carrying out of which Robert was only too glad to give his word. She dismissed them at last, and Shargar by and by found himself in bed, clean, and for the first time in his life, between a pair of linen sheets, not altogether to his satisfaction, for mere order and comfort were substituted for adventure and success. But greater trials awaited him. In the morning he was visited by Brodie, the tailor, and Elshender, the shoemaker, both of whom he held in awe as his superiors in the social scale, and by them handled and measured from head to feet, the latter included after which he had to lie in bed for three days till his clothes came home, for Betty had carefully committed every article of his former dress to the kitchen fire, not without a sense of pollution to the bottom of her kettle. Nor would he have got them for double the time, had not Robert haunted the tailor as well as the shoemaker, like an evil conscience, till they had finished them. Thus grievous was Shargar's introduction to the comforts of respectability. Nor did he like it much better when he was dressed and able to go about, for not only was he uncomfortable in his new clothes, which, after the very easy fit of the old ones, felt like a suit of plate armour, but he was liable to be sent for at any moment by that awful sovereignty in whose dominions he found himself, and which, of course, proceeded to instruct him not merely in his own religious duties, but in the religious theories of his ancestors, if, indeed, Shargar's ancestors ever had any. And now the shorter catechism seemed likely to be changed into the longer catechism, for he had it Sundays as well as Saturdays, besides Elaine's Alarm to the Unconverted, Baxter's Saint's Rest, Erskine's Gospel Sonnets, and other books of a like kind. Nor was it any relief to Shargar that the gloom was broken by the incomparable Pilgrim's Progress and the Holy War, for he cared for none of these things. Indeed, so dreary did he find it all, that his love to Robert was never put to such a severe test. But for that he would have run for it. Twenty times a day was he so tempted. At school, though, it was better, yet it was bad, for he was ten times as much laughed at for his new clothes, though they were of the plainest, as he had been for his old rags. Still he bore all the pangs of unwelcome advancement, without a grumble for the sake of his friend alone, whose dog he remained as much as ever. But his past life of cold and neglect, and hunger and blows, and homelessness and rags, began to glimmer as in the distance of a vaporous sunset, and the loveless freedom he had then enjoyed gave it a bloom as of summer roses. 
I wonder whether there may not have been in some unknown corner of the old lady's mind this lingering remnant of paganism, that in reclaiming the outcast from the error of his ways, she was making an offering acceptable to that God whom her mere prayers could not move to look with favour upon her prodigal son, Andrew. Nor from her own acknowledged religious belief as a background would it have stuck so fiery off either. Indeed, it might have been a partial corrective of some yet more dreadful articles of her creed, which she held, be it remembered, because she could not help it. End. Chapter 10